0: This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a podcast about work, culture and creating happier work. You can find all of the episodes on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. This episode is also going to be available at the end of this week as a YouTube video. So there, alongside the discussion, you can see photographs and drawings of some of the projects we're discussing. And you'll find that, I'll tweet it out later in the week and it'll be pinned to the top of our Twitter. You'll get that by searching for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. So my interest in chatting to Bjarke Ingalls came about when I saw the design for the new Google Landscraper at King's Cross. Bjarke is, in many people's opinion, the number one architect in the world, and he's created two new buildings for Google. The one in King's Cross is this vast structure that runs alongside King's Cross station platforms. It's like sort of a tower block laid on its side with all manner of things that most of us will never experience at work. It's got a running track on the roof. It's got all manner of extra perks inside. While the external plans and photographs of these buildings are always published, I was interested in what's inside. What does the world's rock star architect do when it comes to understanding our work and how we're working? To be honest, I was, I was slightly fearful that a big tower block just meant a big open plan. I spoke to some other architects this week at a conference and the response I got to my criticisms of open plan was that the fault was all on bad management. Open plan wasn't at fault at all. And I was interested in Bjarke's view. I think his answer is far more thoughtful than that and really stimulating. So we talked through a number of big projects and it's worth you understanding a few of those. Uh, There's quite a few of, of the the big group, Barker Ingalls group project's opening right now. There's uh, something called the Court Scraper in New York, which is this remarkable sort of pyramids-like structure. It's sometimes called Via West 57. The Lego House just opened in Copenhagen. We're about a year away from this extraordinary new power plant for Copenhagen that has a full ski slope and park on the top of the building. The power plant is a good illustration, actually, of sort of Bjarke's sense of fun. The original design was to have smoke rings coming out of the roof and and actually these these would be sort of combination of co2 plus water vapor and and in we're intended really to sort of signify the amount of co2 coming out of the factory so children could count them children could understand the impact of the the power plant from sort of counting really but as time has gone on they've actually developed that idea and he's going to talk about it it's it's really adding to the symbolism of renewability bjarke also mentions another building a sort of legendary building called uh, building 20 at mit and that was a famously messy temporary construction that was built of wood so the wood aspects of it was important because it meant a lot of the inhabitants ended up adapting rebuilding remixing their surroundings to make them more suited to their teams now look Building 20 was famous for being noisy, badly lit, had a leaky roof. It was really ill thought out. It was sort of hastily constructed uh, wooden, wooden form. But the interesting thing about it is that the ill-thought-out design but the adaptability was regarded as one of its strengths. So it produced nine Nobel Prize-winning physicists and actually was, it was sort of held in high esteem as being this remarkably creative place. So if we're debating sort of work culture and, and how much our work can be shaped by us, then actually thinking about how our buildings shape our culture seem really relevant. And, you know, is there a way that our building can actually harness greater creativity? Piaka also talks through one of his earlier projects called the Infinity Loop or the Eight House. It was sort of a mixed residential and business project. There was a huge figure eight, effectively squished down in certain corners. So it looked like a sort of huge constructed bow tie. And he explains the thinking behind that. Myself and Bjarke talk about how he builds offices to create work cultures. But we also go on and talk about the culture at Big, his company, uh, the Bjarke Ingalls Group. We go on and talk about how how he, he generates the creativity of of probably the most esteemed architectural firm in the world. It's an immensely creative place. But one of the limitations that I learned about architecture is that 19 of tw- of every 20 projects that they do that they work on never actually happens. So the, maybe the client changes their mind, the budget's cut, someone else wins the commission. So how does he generate a creative culture and how do they learn to deal with that rejection? Now, if you liked this and you're here for the first time, there's 30 more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. Always happy to have people link in to me or you can, you can follow us on Twitter. Really excited with this one. The, the guy leading his field, Here's Bjarke Ingalls talking about architecting great culture. I kicked off with a question about ethos because. Bianca talks a lot about the history of architecture being a series of creators who are each angry with what came before, and their whole sort of ethos was a reaction to the past. His ethos is far more evolutionary, he's far more sympathetic to the the changing needs of people around him. He created a comic book which talked about his ethos, which is called Yes, He's More, about the idea of trying to accommodate all of the demands and, and all of the history into our architecture. And I asked him to explain that to kick us off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, um, the emphasis is actually on being affirmative rather than reactive or reactionary. So my, my big complaint about the typical idea of the avant-garde as being revolutionary or being defined by who or what they are against is that you often have a negative definition. And, and I like to say that if, if your definition of your agenda is who or what you are against... You are essentially a follower in reverse. I, I like to look at, at evolution, that how things uh, evolve. And because life is always evolving, so should our cities. What was true yesterday might not be true to tomorrow. And in that sense, life itself is actually a constant source of change and transformation. Like in, in a way, I like to say that as an architect, your greatest skill is your empathy, your ability ability to put yourself in the place of the people you are designing and building for. And because there is always sources of change in society, and this, this change can come from technology. It can come from migration. It can be cultural change. It can be uh, climate change. Wherever the change is coming from, it means that life is changing and somehow what was fitting yesterday suddenly doesn't fit anymore. That this change has, has changed habits or, or activities in such a way that the framework that we designed yesterday for our lives doesn't really fit anymore. And if as an architect, you can open your eyes and your ears and identify those moments of change, you suddenly get an amazing opportunity to accommodate new, new possibilities or to solve new problems. And in a way, you get the possibility to give form to the future that we will soon all be living in
0: it's i'm i'm so g- glad as sort of as a novice student of this the one word that I wrote down at the top of my uh notebook was empathy so uh and I, in fact, that was going to be my next question so so i am so glad that you say that sort of empathy is such a critical quality. one example of it was on the infinity loop where you were moving desks and residential to the, the former sort of hates state sunlight and the latter loves it, and you were thinking about the mindset of your your the, the people in your buildings but tell me this. What's your process of gathering that empathy? Is it hunch? Do you measure it? Is there any way to check your instinct?
1: Well, it's good. It's um, a good question. I mean, I mean, f- f- first, first of all, like, ep- empathy is not, I think empathy is a form of creativity, because you're actually not feeling what the other one is feeling. You are imagining what they may be feeling and in a way you try to put yourself in their place in in their shoes so it involves a lot of a lot of imagination and, and then i think secondly i mean i've always thought that philip stark was quite smart when he uh, when he said that um he doesn't design for a mass audience he designs just for himself and a few of his good friends and he was is and was at least uh, uh, one of the most successful and popular designers on the planet but he was actually really just trying to make himself and a few a few people happy cuz the good thing when you're actually making something that you you know that you yourself w- would like then you're not designing for some kind of nameless faceless crowd uh, you know that you're actually you know that at least you're making one person happy whereas if you're designing for some kind of a generic statistical construct then uh, you actually don't know If anyone would like this, even if it seems like the average would, because the the average Joe doesn't really exist. It's just a sort of a statistical construct. And then I think lastly, you know, a lot of the times when people ask, you know, what inspires you, um, where do you go when you're looking for inspiration? I like to point out that, in fact, I do think that the ordinary is already incredibly exciting. The the everyday life, the the, the practical concerns and considerations of uh, of everyday life, uh, you know, living uh, working, uh, playing, whatever, actually contains. A tremendous amount of, of, of practical challenges, and, and and in some ways, architecture is the art of turning the practical into poetry. Uh, in a way, it's the art of creating something extraordinary out of the ordinary. So, in that sense, when you when you look at, for instance, the Infinity Loop, uh, this mixed-use combination of uh, spaces for working, for institutions, for shops, for townhouses, and, and and apartments, by actually taking a lot of like rather conventional quality criteria, but really delivering them to the extreme, we end up sort of uh, creating a lot of diversity. Some, some homes gravitate towards the top. Some of the offices gravitate towards the, the bottom. The differences in typical floor depths between commercial and residential floor plates ends up creating ledges that actually have space for little gardens and small paths. And suddenly, we create almost like a mountain village where you can actually walk and bicycle all the way from the ground to uh, to the 10-story penthouse. So in a way, the, the sum of all Those little considerations actually becomes much more than the sum of the parts. You really get synergy between all those little pieces of practical poetry.
0: And and so the the implication of that, absolutely. I mean, poetry is such a a beautiful word for some of the breathtaking projects that you've got underway. And I I saw you. I, I wouldn't ask you to discuss particular clients, but I saw in the the press coverage that you did for the Google. Headquarters, and I know that you're doing the, the, the Landscraper in London and you're doing the, the Google headquarters, you were quoted as saying that it will help design Google 2.0, which effectively feels like it's a cultural statement. And, you know, you're helping them, you know, build and be fit for purpose for the, for the new state of work. Uh, taking into account the fact that you say that you start from the perspective of one, I'm just really interested in what you've thought about the modern working sort of office environment i noticed that your office at the carlsberg ex-carlsberg factory is open plan do you sit there contemplating the state of mind of people inside buildings or how do you go about
1: trying to to bring that to life um i mean um i mean f- first first of all like when i can definitely see when we look at our own workspace i mean also i have to say that the architects are probably privileged uh, by the fact that uh, what we do is so physically present in our work environment. Like in a way, I'd I, I like to say, as, as an you know, as an architect, you can have a rather raw and simple work environment because the models uh, that you create, the pictures you create, the drawings you create, uh, we we make sure that everything is always pinned up. Uh, models are always present in a way that everything we do is always physically manifest in the space we're working. Because like, if things are hidden away in, in the computer, they're also hidden away from, from a spontaneous criticism or a spontaneous, uh, a comment that could actually trigger the next eureka moment. But that also means that uh, for, for architects, our environment, our physical environment is so, f- like, visually stimulating and physically stimulating because it's crowded with evidence of the, of the work we do. For other professions, it can maybe be harder to create e- evidence of uh, uh, of the activities you're making. But I do realize that especially if you're dealing with, with innovation, if you're trying to break new ground, if you're trying to enable collaboration, then the, the best thing you can do is to make sure that what is going on in people's heads and inside their computers is to the largest extent possible somehow physically manifest in the space where they're working. Because um, I also tend to realize that the best way to facilitate an open collaboration between uh, many people with many different kinds of intelligence and the way you avoid that it becomes about my idea or your idea is that if the idea is always present in the form of a model, or a sketch or drawing or a statement then if someone is criticizing it they're not criticizing you know me Or the person who came up with the idea, they're criticizing the idea because the idea is there. It's on the table between us. So in a way, the the, the best way to open up a creative process for incorporating input from the many is to give, to make the the idea or the project as physical and as physically present as possible because then the conversation becomes about it, not about what you said or what I said.
0: Yeah, but but like so, so you know when you've got a brief and the brief and look you know the outside of your buildings and the the outside structures of your buildings are these sort of semi magical sort of vivid dreams they're just beautiful uh forms and and you've been rightly recognized for that and i think you know the last few years you've gone on to whether it's the lego house that's come to bear or or via 57 some of the dry line project is just incredible um so so these 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 incredible things i'm interested in do, do you ever go back to a job and Correct it. So like, you know, the the Google structure on the outside, the the two buildings that you've been commissioned to do there are these incredible forms. But I guess, you know, them as much as any, you're going to be tasked with achieving something that works internally so you know and look all of the buildings do infinity loop had to work as a retail space it had to work as a a residential space but obviously the google buildings are going to be required to have high quality creative work going on inside them and so how do you set about saying we've identified what the environment is where high quality creative work can take place. I guess the critical thing I'm asking is that I saw Mark Zuckerberg talk about the new Facebook building and uh, and he said it's got the biggest open plan space in the world. Now, the interesting thing for me, who's someone who's been fascinated with work culture and studied that, is that all the evidence I see about open plan structures is they don't correlate with, satisfaction at work that don't correlate with productivity and they don't correlate with creativity. So I wonder, as you're commissioned to create a structure that delivers those things, what are the things that go into your head? How how do you try and facilitate that creativity?
1: I I think with with Google, we were quite, um, uh, and I think a a very real uh, reason why we called it Google 2.0 is actually that uh, Google until this date has never built a building they have moved into existing structures and they have pioneered you know the the well equipped uh, snack kitchens with infinite supply of seaweed snacks and the the foosball and ping pong and the colorful interiors and the colorful google bikes so you can like bike from one one place to the so they they've made a lot of innovations that have almost become the standard of silicon valley uh, today but they've actually never built a building so it's always been like a hermit hermit crab moving into structures left behind by former companies when When we started working with them, um, it just so happened that they just signed the lease for the Muffet airfield, the NASA airfield right next to Google's campus in Mountain View. And they had these um, really large hangars that have been left. They were hangars for Zeppeliners from uh, decades ago. And those hangars are like huge, beautiful, large spanning structures. And uh, everybody from Google uh, all the way up to the, to the founders were super fascinated by these, uh, you know, epic, sort of huge environments and the possibilities of what you could do inside. And then another thing that uh, that struck us is that they were all talking about this building at MIT. And I always misremember the number, but I think it was called building 40 or building 20. It was a building that was built entirely out of wood as a kind of temporary, almost like barrack-like structure to accommodate certain uh, disciplines. And this building... In itself, like rather crappy, you know, straightforward timber frame architecture has been the host of a surprising amount of Nobel Prize winners and sort of really groundbreaking scientific and technological discoveries. And maybe the explanation was, or that was the the hypothesis, that what was so good about that building was that it wasn't precious. It wasn't perfect. And it was even made out of a material wood where you can easily drill a hole and mount a few things or you can even like stick saw, you can cut a hole to the neighbor space and run some pipes through it. If you want to conduct an even bigger experiment, the freedom and the flexibility was actually an asset. And the fact that it wasn't perfect and precious actually made it more dynamic and, and free and flexible. So we came up with this idea that for a company like Google, if you could say like a company like Apple is about uh, restricting adaptability and making one perfect solution that in theory should fit all and, and Apple do it incredibly well. Google Google is much more about open source and about hackability so we quite quickly coined the term that the we wanted the Google's environment to be hackable that each and every engineer should be able to transform and adapt their their environment. And then the second thing we came up with was when you look at the organization architecture of Google, you know, Googlers, they sit in a, a in a team that bundles up into a community that bundles up into like larger and larger entities. And we said sort of a, a typical sort of community consists of up to between 100 and 150 Googlers. So inspired by the hangers, we created these large open environments, like almost like we call it squooms, like domes that are more or less square and plan. These these environments have very few columns, very large spans. That's why the architecture has this sort of gently sagging or hanging concave kind of uh, architecture. And underneath this, we bundled together like a series of what you could call platforms or tables, basically really large platforms where you could sit around 150 Googlers, the equivalent of a a community. And then they duck together. So they touch each other, but they also leave space between each other for courtyards uh, where you can sort of descend to the, level below where you have all the meeting rooms, all the social spaces, all the snack kitchens, like the more noisy and social activities. And then you can ascend up to this gently stepping landscapes of interconnected platforms. That means that in the end, you actually have 3,000 Googlers within roughly the same level. You can walk from one to the next to the next. Sometimes you go a few steps up, sometimes you go a few steps down. So you actually have the local identity and the small scale of your community, but you're also part of this big common space. So, so in a way, we try to combine the best of both worlds. And then uh, almost as a, as a kit of parts, we've designed, we have designed, uh, but also, other uh, interior architects and furniture designers will be welcome to design small-scale elements, what we call the human scale, that some, like roughly half the Googlers prefer a more sort of um, focused and enclosed environments and the other half a, a more open environment, so that with like temporary elements from a, a wide variety of of materials and sort of designs, you can create temporary architecture around you. We actually used Burning Man as a reference. Burning Man, this uh, art festival in um, in the in the desert, where actually a lot of Googlers uh, and a lot of Silicon Valley people uh, end up going. It's it's a big empty white sheet of dust, but then for like one week, it becomes like this explosion of creativity. With temporary architecture, and in a similar way, we were suggesting that maybe this environment could really, you know, each each team could express their local identity in various ways within this this large sort of continuous environment. So that you actually, that it's not about some kind of a minimalistic aesthetic of an open office where everything is the same, but it's almost like a a canvas of creativity where each unit, each team can actually uh, express their identity and maybe some of their big experiments are, are physically manifest in some form or the other.
0: Right so it's sort of modular in, in, to some extent where, where tribe can sort of self identify and and put up barriers is that right you like you've you've allowed teams to self define themselves exactly oh fantastic i wonder if we could just go on and talk really briefly about sort of the culture at big group and so you know the the thing that's really struck me is that I wrote down the, the word, I think I used it before, but you know, the, a lot of your creations are like these vivid dreams. But the, the thing that really strikes me, firstly, I was interested in is that 19 out of 20 projects that you work on that you imagine don't happen. So how do you keep teams motivated when you have that, that constant failure and, and the constant rejection built into what you do? Is, is there
1: any tips that you learn about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think as, a, I mean, maybe uh, as an architect, you have to have a certain healthy portion of optimism, uh, in order to be able to, uh, to function. And then, uh, you also develop elephant thick skin, uh, because, uh, if you, if you get devastated every time a project dies, then it's going to be a very tough, uh, life you're going to live. But, but I do think that, um, We've always had this principle that rather than trying to figure out what would win in this particular uh, competition, you know, in a way, rather than trying to give the jury what we think they want, we always... Uh, strive towards making something that, that we know would be super interesting and super relevant uh, for us to do. Cause I mean, if you compromise and then you fail, then you have nothing because you compromised and you didn't win. But if you, if you really develop something that is really original, really thought provoking, that actually makes you learn something new in the process, that actually opens maybe potentially whole new avenues of explanation and then you lose then you have at least discovered all these amazing things. You've actually generated, you know, like new ideas. You've opened your uh, your eyes to a whole new world of exploration. And the next time a similar challenge or another challenge comes around, those ideas are still alive and can be pursued. And, and and then again, if you if you actually compromise and you win, then it's almost even worse because then you actually have to, you know, spend the next five to six years of your life with something that you don't really believe in. Um, so in that sense, I think this, this like notion that the artistic and intellectual discoveries is actually uh, the drug that makes us high. And of course, we are We're put in this world to to build buildings and and happily, more and more of the ideas that that we put out there actually ends up becoming built. Uh, And I'm also seeing that more and more Things that we developed or that we have been consistently in pursuit of, maybe even for a decade, suddenly the time is is right or the moment arises where that project actually becomes in demand. Because I think the interesting thing about being an architect is that we can't really say we would like to do this kind of building and then make it. Like if you're an artist... painter let's say you can go down to the art supply store and buy some paint and some canvas and then you can paint the painting you had in your head or that you were longing for it because it's going to cost you like 500 bucks if if you're an architect you can't really do this uh, skyscraper that combines a a cascade of uh, interconnected Double height spaces into a spiral of terraces and, and, and staircases because it's going to cost $3 billion to, to do it. So, so, so anyway, as an architect, you have to wait for the moment where what a client needs to have happen and has the resources to pay for can somehow be combined with what you would like to see happen and have the ability to, you know, demonstrate that this would actually make sense for, for the client to, to realize. So in that sense, it becomes very important for an architect to attract the right clients with the right needs that somehow match what we are interested in and capable of of creating. So in that sense, I think for an architect, it's incredibly important that the signals you send out into the world are coherent with who you are and what you would like to do. And if you keep confusing the world by showing work that is not really you know that interesting because you compromise too much or like you try to preconceive what the, the potential clients were looking for, then the signal you're sending becomes like either weak or, or noisy. Whereas if what you do is consistently projecting a very clear picture and a very clear idea about who you are, what you're about, what makes you tick, then eventually the right people will receive that signal and they will come to you and you'll have a perfect match of, of opportunity and um, the, 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 the need of the client and the vision of, uh, of you and your fellow architects.
0: Yeah, and I can really see that. I mean, the purity of your work, you, definitely you've got some remarkable projects that are opening in the next few years, and the purity of your work seems so complete. There's, there's very few projects on your website where you look at it and you, you look like there's any sort of compromise. They're so, they're so beautiful. But tell me this then, when you're hiring someone into that culture, so you've got a really incredible culture at Big, and, and I read an interview with you yesterday where you said it's not just you, You know, the the people you collaborate with are wonderful what do you look for when you when you hire someone do you look for the ability to collaborate do you look for genius ideas that stand alone is it a combination of those things how does someone how do you how do you build a, a culture that doesn't have compromise at the heart of it
1: I mean, first of all, I have to say that I am very happy that the, that I'm an architect because it is quite easy to hire architects because uh, you can see what they do. You know, like if you're, if you're hiring an accountant or a lawyer or some, something that you have to go through like all kinds of tests, I guess, and, and interviews and, uh, and stuff like that. Whereas with architects, just like the initial screening, if if the if the architect has a great portfolio, then it's probably going to be a great architect, and and if not, then probably not. Uh, I mean, of course. So that means that when when you already arrive for the interview, you already come uh, come quite quite a long way. And I think I think in in many ways we also attract the kind of people that are into our way of of working and and thinking. So I think there's some kind of a self screening happening there. But then then I actually like to remind my uh, my colleagues that take care of, uh, of most of the interviews is that we're actually not necessarily looking for a particular type. Because I think what unites us is our work and our attitude towards work. And sometimes you need... There's certain strengths in certain situations to being a very extroverted person. There's also certain strengths in being a very introverted person. You can, you can sort of dive down and dig in and, uh, and crank it out. Some people have great social skills. Some people have great technical skills. Some people have both. Some people... So like, I think it's, it's quite important that we don't end up like creating some kind of a stereotype of uh of a particular personality because sometimes I actually think that the misfit or like the oddball or even some some people that have a slight, you know, that have some slight challenges with how they communicate with others can actually be quite great to have on a team if you make sure that the team itself actually has enough of the right personalities. I also definitely have architects that are not necessarily the best designers or even the best technical uh, people but they have amazing people skills and when you insert them into a team of 10 people Suddenly that whole team starts functioning uh, uh, much better. So I, I think maybe one thing that that I can say is that in a way, the way that I've designed my own job, I'm the, let's say I'm the founder and chairman of, of, of Big, obviously, but uh, my role is somehow to be the chief visionary or the creative director in the course of the last 17 years of my first company plot uh, with another architect, uh, Shunan Smith, and then Big, I've I've had almost every responsibility at, at some point in time. But as soon as I could, I tried to find someone who could take over that responsibility and do it as good as or ideally better than uh, than me. Uh, in a way, k- keep like, liberating me to do what I enjoy the most and therefore also excel at uh, the most, which is uh, you know working with the teams to create big ideas. And in a way, I've been looking for that in my colleagues as well. So if you look for, at my group of partners, right now I have 11 partners and none of them have the same profile or even personality or skills. Skill set as me. Some of them are more sort of, you know, like more universal, but then. Some of them have peaks in in certain skills, but then they may be like really lousy at other skills. And I think in a typical dysfunctional uh, organization, people they they get promoted until they reach their level of incompetence. Anyway, so um, you know someone comes in, they're really good. You promote them. Then they get a slightly different role. They're still really good. You promote them again. And at some point, they reach a level where they have certain responsibilities that in that involve skill sets that they're not very good at, and then they get stuck doing that for the rest of their lives because you you don't promote them again because they're actually not very good anymore but you're not like firing them because they've been like uh, g- good loyal soldiers so then people end up stuck in a position where they're doing something that they're not good at and they probably don't even particularly enjoy so I- i've been ve- i've been very conscious that for all the roles in the office including the partners it's not like one once you become a partner you have to do certain things no, no. Some partners are purely sort of internal and only deal with design teams. Some partners are purely technical and and deal with the last construction. Some some partners are purely about outreach and uh, and and business development. Some partners are about like tinkering with the uh, with products and 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 more sort of nerdy scientific aspects. In a way, it's it's important to really look at what what makes a person tick. What are their uh, superpowers, and then make then make sure that you end up like in a way forming the job around them rather than trying to fit different people into a uniform set of job descriptions you actually tailor the job description to fit the unique profile of the people you've uh, you find around you
0: it's interesting that is because that's That's such a, it's a very unusual idea, isn't it? A lot of the time people say it's, you know, it's strategy, then structure, then people. And actually, I agree, some of the best performing teams I've ever worked with have been adapted around the quirks of different people to get the best out of everyone. I
1: mean, I I think think one of my... My my dearest friends and and greatest uh, partners. He he was hired as a typical architect. He wasn't necessarily the best sort of um, project designer, but the but then he had other skill sets about around you know, communication and and you know partnerships and uh, and anyway. So rather than trying to. Complain about the fact that he didn't function the way that we had foreseen. We started saying, "Well, then, uh, why don't you run with that instead and see where that can go?" and And I think a lot of the organization and culture of Big today is actually thanks to the fact that we liberated this guy from his from the responsibilities that you would normally expect from him, and and gave him something else that maybe other people wouldn't care so much about. So in that sense, if you can tap into people's superpower, and if they're actually doing the stuff that that makes them tick, then they do it with so much more skill and so much more force because at the end of the day that if you're fueled by passion rather than uh, obligation or then, then it suddenly becomes like living your life or playing rather than yeah. doing homework because you have to
0: yeah absolutely tell me I, this is probably like asking which of your children is your favorite but you've got some some beautiful projects landing in the next few years and i know the
1: lego house has just landed what what's the one you're most excited about? I mean, we we, we I would say that uh, there's probably a handful because also like different projects allow you to pursue different uh, different uh, different dreams. But I mean, maybe I'll, I'll mention one or two. Uh, we we just broke ground on the habitat for the two giant pandas of the Copenhagen Zoo, and uh, it's been so fun to. I mean, it's definitely going to be the cutest clients I'll ever have. The sort of the two pandas, but uh, but also um, we had to sort of of course. When we're talking about empathy, uh, you know, I had to sort of imagine what does a panda want and they're from China, so I don't understand what they're saying. So we had to uh, ask uh, a lot of uh, zookeepers uh, and zoologists to speak on their behalf. And like two two things we discovered: one is that uh, actually the the climate they come from is almost exactly the same climate as the climate in Copenhagen. So we could really realize this this dream of in, indoor outdoor. Yeah, actually the big the big fluffy fur they have is not just to be cuddly; it's actually because they they can endure a little bit of uh, of winter. So um, so we can really realize this dream about indoor outdoor. So we've also created a habitat where there is no back of house so you can see the pandas at all time it's only we've created the possibility when uh, when the female starts nesting she needs to be able to create a a more private environment but basically you can see both the zookeepers and the pandas at the at any time no matter what they're doing and then the second thing we discovered was um, even though pandas seem so cute and uh, and friendly uh, which they also are they're also very solitary so they can't cohabit the male and the female if you would put them into the same uh, habitat, they would get into a fight. In that sense, they might be quite similar to uh, to humans. So in that sense, we've had to sort of create a habitat that is one biotope tailored for pandas, but is somehow separated in a section for her and a section for him. We actually ended up designing it so when you look at it from above, it, it really looks like yin-yang, an enclosure for the male and the female that that forms a unified circle. And then we're using undulating landscape level changes so that you can sometimes see the, the pandas uh, from above and sometimes... Uh, at eye level, even in the restaurant, we we lowered the floor so you can look into the eyes of the pandas. Sort of trying to maximize the intimacy and the proximity to uh, to the animals. Amazing! So I think that that's been like great fun to do uh, this little exercise and really to sort of learn about a panda that I thought I knew that I already knew a lot about, but once you once you start digging into it, there's a, there's a lot to be discovered.
0: I love it, and 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 you really caught me by surprise because I was expecting you to. I mean, you've just got these some of these big and colossal projects. And uh that you've worked on, you know, the Redskins Park, the um the, the dry line, which I love. And so I I hadn't expected you to say something which is almost like you say, filled with empathy for this small creature. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. It's also like a, a, another another funny thing is like uh I, I think maybe something that I've noticed is at the core of what we do often is uh, what I like to call bigamy. The fact that you, you often don't have to choose between one or the other. Quite often there is a third way where you can actually have both. And I think quite often innovation comes when you combine things that you would normally see as mutually exclusive but when you join them it actually forms a new a new entity that combines the qualities of both sides into a new hybrid that in a way points the way forward uh, some some of the obvious examples is that the we're doing um the, the court scraper that we just finished in uh, in New York that combines a, a courtyard a European courtyard building with the density and the, the verticality of a skyscraper into this new hybrid of a warped pyramid with an oasis in the heart of the, of the city block. And also we're doing a, um, a stadium in Austin that is actually a combination of a European soccer stadium and an all-American rodeo stadium, which is the, the ultimate sort of surf and turf uh, kind of combination of, of, of European and American archetypes. And, and I think these kinds of projects... Like we're doing a power plant in Copenhagen that is so clean that we could turn the roof into an Alpine ski park.
0: So tell me on that on that because I, I love that project. But tell me on that. So so um so I love the smoke ring on it. But I I almost could see some of your working because I saw the first incarnation of that and you had this this compressed carbon dioxide. And then did you discover that carbon dioxide would never be visible because now it's a steam idea, isn't it? And 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 sort of it, it changed slightly. What?
1: How did that one evolve? No, it, it, it actually evolved uh, exactly because uh, of what you're saying. We realized that the, the smoke was actually uh, so clean that uh, the only visible part of it was the steam. And then we also realized that even though there was something cool about radical transparency, being sort of open about the fact that there is a small amount of CO2 coming out of the, the power plant, we also thought that since we're working with the steam, that's the visible part, maybe it could really be a complete transformation of the symbolism of a, of a chimney that every child knows that a chimney is something bad because that's where all the pollution comes out what if in the future a chimney could be something playful that puffs a ring of steam every time we have reduced carbon emissions with a ton or 10 tons or whatever so that what comes out of the chimney is a celebration rather than a symptom. Suddenly, it really started, you know, A, it became much easier for us to do it uh, technically because we could actually see what was coming out. And B, it really becomes a perfect inversion of a negative symbol into a positive. And then, and then, and then of course, like I think a project like the power plant is, is important because in a way, it becomes a powerful landmark for the fact that clean technology is not just let's say, morally more justified or we have a cleaner conscience if our energy is clean. You know, it's also radically different. It's not just good for the birds. It actually becomes radically different for the inhabitants of that city because now in Copenhagen in one year, we can actually hike and mountain climb and alpine ski on the roof of our power plant. So green technology means that, that factories and power plants don't have to be these like uh, cancerous areas on the city map, uh, you know, something you have to be af- as far away from as possible. No, no, you can hang around on the roof of, of these uh, structures because you literally or almost literally have clean mountain air on the roof of of this power plant. And I love this idea that when you open Google Maps, then like city tissue is kind of yellow. Uh, the streets are, are white and your know, parks are green. Cultural buildings are red. Industrial areas are gray. But in the f- in the future, this is not going to be grey. It's going to be green because it's going to be a public park. So in that sense, um, the green technology is. Like a long time ago, we came up with this idea of hedonistic sustainability, which a lot of people would think is a mo- an oxymoron, that hedonism and sort of enjoyment is the opposite of this kind of Protestant idea that it has to hurt to do good cold showers to save uh, energy. No, if, if we design our cities and buildings with the right mindset, sustainability be- actually becomes a driver for increased quality of life. Uh, And I think our first project ever, actually, the Copenhagen Harbour Bath, is an example of that, that a clean harbour is not only good for the fish, it's also amazing for the citizens of that city. You don't have to sit in your car for hours to get to the beach. You can actually jump in the port in the middle of the city. And now the power plant that you can ski on the roof means that suddenly you actually get alpine skiing in an otherwise flat city such as Copenhagen, that sustainability and hedonism could actually be two sides of the same coin. Yeah.
0: I tell you what, through the, uh, the work I've done in the last couple of weeks, um i'm, I'm definitely the, my desire to come to denmark has never been higher i just want to come and see all these incredible structures i've seen so uh, so uh, and you've moved back to copenhagen yourself now is that right
1: uh exactly i'm uh, i'm in the process of, uh, of of moving there i should be arriving in uh, in january
0: thank you so much i'm so i'm so honored and and so grateful for your time fantastic
1: excellent such a pleasure to talk with you
0: thank you so much for your time today That was fascinating. If you've got an Alexa, you can get your Alexa to learn the eat, sleep, work, repeat skill by saying Alexa, learn, eat, sleep, work, repeat skill. Do let me know if you're getting that to work. Uh, Always keen to hear from you. See you next week.